You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. And welcome to Digital Noise. Hello. It's so nice to return to look at all your smiling face. Oh, wait. No, I can't see your smiling faces. Yes. Uh, and you're probably not smiling anyway because you're listening to Digital Noise. Don't be like that. But that just means that you're a hardened cinemaphile. You know, you don't have time to, like, you know, mess around with silly, fluffy shit. You're serious about cinema. And that's why we're... Oh, shit. Have you seen some of the movies we're talking about this week? <laughs> They're like, I'm not here for joy. I'm here for education. <laughs> That's right. Don't be so frugal. This is edification for the masses. Uh, uh, Marco is joining me this week on Digital Noise, where we have a lot of movies of varying quality to talk to you about, but all of them should make for a very entertaining discussion. I would hope so. Uh, and before we get started, let me just thank our sponsor, who is Circle Brewery, located right here in Austin, Texas. You can go visit them at their lovely little brew pub uh, on on. Breaker Lane, which is uh, like really neat. It's a little hole in the wall, but they have games and stuff you can play. There's lots of like beers that you can't get in the store that are available there on draft or in the bottle. Uh, and, and they're just really nice people. And uh, one thing I really appreciate about it, like I, I've there's for some reason there's a couple brew pubs in town I go into, and they're kind of like has that old school rednecky Austin feel to it. And this is one that's sort of like. The really left-leaning liberal like cr- crowd that's kind of more my scene. Okay, you know, it's those hippies who voted for Beto as opposed to the hippies who were like all in libertarian. The first time I went there, they were having a be- the two they, strains of Austin. First time I went there, they, it was election night and they were having a Beto party. So, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> but these they, are my people. They're wonderful. They're a sponsor of the site. They provide us with beer, which we're drinking right now. That's I'm right. enjoying my Circle Blur half of ice and as am I. Uh, it's quite tasty stuff. You can get their stuff in stores, or you can go, like I said, visit them at their brew pub and big thanks to them also a big thanks to our subscribers who are out there let me emphasize once again and i know you people are already subscribers like hey i'm already subscribing what do you want but a lot of you are listening to this and not subscribing i'm not saying you have to i'm just saying if you like this show it's not going to keep going forever unless we get you guys subscribing and we're really talking about such little money that you would barely even notice it being gone from your your bank account every month, depending on your economic level. But even at the cheapest economic level, we have a $2 a month subscription that makes a big difference to us. You would never even notice it was gone. And it's just a way of showing your support. There's a $2, $5, $10, and $25, depending on your economic status, I suppose. And that comes as well with lots of bonus stuff online that we have in our forums. Lots of shows that we do specifically for them, including our very popular The Gathering. That's right. If you never thought we sounded drunk enough on Mike. Yeah. That's what The Gathering is for. If you guys ever used to listen to the old site, I was on Spill.com. We had a podcast called The League of Extremely Ordinary Gentlemen. Well, The Gathering, which is available to the $5 and above uh, subscribers, which we call brown coats because all our subscription levels have a geek reference level to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a Firefly reference for those not in the know. Uh, that you can listen to that. And that's like every two weeks, there's like three hours of new content that's basically like a new Leog. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I can't keep up with all the shows on one of us. I, I can't, and I run the damn yeah, site. You know? But also, I just want to throw out there as well, uh, we now have all of our shows, including this one, uh, on iTunes, on Spotify, with separate accounts for each show that you can subscribe yeah. to. 
please do us a favor and it makes a huge difference. You have no idea how big of a difference it makes. Go on to those sites, go on to iTunes, go on to Spotify, what have you. Leave us five stars, leave us a good review. It actually does make a huge difference. The more of those we get, when we're trying to like, you know, get to sponsor stuff or, or get to talk about stuff. Where it's like, Hey, can you send us a copy of this movie for review? Can we get into the screening? What have you? Can we go cover this festival? That's the stuff they look at with these mm-hmm. in this day and time. And that makes a huge difference. So please do that. If you have not already, uh, trying to think if there's anything uh, other house cleaning I should be doing here. I think uh, you've covered most of it. It's like, either that, or we have some boring ass PBS style fun drive every six months. You guys want a tote bag, right? That's right. Co- get the coffee. <laughs> mug it's only with your three hundred dollar donation you get this cheaply made tote bag dude you send me three hundred dollars i will send you a fucking tote bag it won't be for one of us but i'll send you a tote and bag there'll be stuff in the tote bag <laughs> yeah i'm not saying what it'll be a surprise maybe some circle brewery beers anyway let's get on to the actual reviews That'd and we're going to start off with a really odd little hard to define oh, comedy yeah. political comedy film called Obama Land, a uh, part one, Rise part of the yes. Trump Publicans. I'm questioning whether or not there will actually be a part two. So I, I don't even know if that title is part of the joke or if it's yeah. a threat to make a sequel. Exactly. The, all right. So this weird little comedy that's got no one you've ever heard of, most likely in it, mm-hmm. uh, is like it's a super indie, com- like direct to DVD type comedy. But I had been hearing about and I was curious enough to ask for. And the idea is. It's selling it like it's one of those weird, terrible films actually made by right wingers, like that's anti like Obama and anti Democrat and everything. They're selling it like it's one of those movies, but it's a parody of one of those movies. Yeah, and it doesn't always feel like a parody of one of those movies. No, at some point it just feels like one of those movies. It tries to straddle the line a little more than it probably should. Yeah. I mean it's certainly not pro Trump on any level. It it tries to do that sort of South Park thing where it's like well, we can, we can make fun of everybody, but it just reminds you how difficult it is to pull that off. The idea being is that, like, in this universe, Obama had the entire Trump Republican crew murdered. Right. And no one – everyone's like, oh, this was an accident. They all just fell off a balcony at the same time. Right. And and Obama assumes the role of president for, for life, life. Yes. Uh, and has now redes- redefined the entire country, renamed all the states. Uh, everything is, like – this exaggerated hyperbole of the most ridiculous versions of the of the Republican meme you saw. This is the world that liberals want uh, right. of just like crazed, like obviously this stuff is not true. But in this version of the movie, it actually is. Right. And I appreciate that. It's it's obvious satire. It's it is kind of funny. The the premise of the whole thing. And I will say that as this goes along where it's following this guy who is like – who lives in like California, which is like sort of the cornerstone of Obama land, who's like everyone guy who lives there has like a, a goatee that is like abraded they're so all, long they go over their back. You they're know? all latte-sipping hipsters who are like in open relationships and are all about, you know – transgender and queer. So it's basically, it's like, oh, well, we have to have gay sex because, you know, we live in Obama land and yeah. we require it. Would be, it would be offensive for us not to have gay sex. Exactly. Is what they're, the kind of jokes that they're, they're telling with this thing. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the one guy ends up in a scenario where he is on a, a, being in a road trip that involves him 
getting tied up with anti, even though he's like, oh, this is the way my life has always been. Obama is God. And meeting the, you know, the people who supported Trump, the underground revolution who's trying to unseat Obama and his evil plans for even more world domination. The, the, the uh, what is it? The re- redistribution laser, yeah. uh, which of course is as ridiculous as it sounds. And these sort of cells of, uh, of right-wing uh, uh, radicals all operate in of all places, fast food chains. Yeah. Obviously, like ripoffs of Olive Garden or well, they're all chili their names are portmanteaus yes. of like each one is the portmanteau of two different chain, like sort of like very white bread America places like Applebee's or Chili's yeah. or what have you, which is which is kind of it might be the best gag they have going in the movie. I mean, here's the thing: this movie's not like ever laugh out loud funny. But I kind of admired what they were trying to do. Yeah. I was like, for a very low-budget political comedy, I was more or less with it for the length of it. I'm like, I don't think you guys pulled this off, but you did it much better than I would have imagined you could have. I mean, we're talking, you know, public access level quality in terms of production design and acting. Although the the guy they got to cast Obama is actually not bad. It does a credible Obama impersonation. And of course, this version of Obama now has like a Muslim head wrap and a big, huge beard. He's straight up there. He's talking about like, uh, here's how I fooled everyone and not thinking I wasn't a native born Kenyan. And it it takes that attitude of like all of those right wing fever dream conspiracies were actually true all along. And now everybody is just a girly man living in California eating salad, watching, you know, a Mexican band just scream obscenities against white people. And that counts as music. Uh, <sighs> we see it's so heavy handed. And I know it tries to kind of be an equal opportunity offender. But I agree with you. This film never quite nails that tone consistently. Uh, no one in the film is particularly funny. So you can't really rely on the cast uh, personality to kind of save the day. Yeah. Uh, I, I Ultimately, I'm confused by the tone of this because I kind of sense where they want to go. I don't think this is going to make liberals happy. I don't think it's going to make necessarily hardcore conservatives happy. Uh, so Definitely not going to make. I don't know who this movie happy. is for. It's kind of it's for those people who are like I'm a, I I follow politics to some extent, but I also am kind of it's like for people who are like exhausted with the whole thing. Sure. I'm just like oh I don't know what to believe anymore, and I think they're all evil. This is kind of for that crowd yeah. who are like I think they're all bad. But also I think for the kind of crowd that thinks that humor constitutes one of your characters walking up clearly made up to look like Mel Gibson and Braveheart. And then somebody goes, Oh, she's going to give a Braveheart speech. And she does give a Braveheart speech. If you think that's hilarious, maybe this movie's for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, full credit for really actually genuinely trying. Yeah. And this, cause I've seen stuff lo- that not, maybe not like this, but about at the same level that is like, man, y'all were so fucking lazy about this. And this was obviously made for almost no money. And they did genuinely try to make an entertaining comedy. Yeah, even though it sometimes, I think, makes some lazy choices. This would have been, I kept thinking, this would have been a great series of Saturday Night Live skits. This is a great skit that just should never have been feature length. Speaking of never should have been feature length. Well, okay. So oh our, uh, we're going to talk about a series of films. Um, yes. We talked about only one before in, in a previous Digital Noise. Mill Creek Entertainment, uh-huh. who is a company that has, was known more previously for sort of doing like bottom, like 
you know, just like re-releases on Blu-ray or DVD that were just no frills, just right. straight up. This is the cheapest version of this you can get, but we're re-releasing it. You want four and, John Wayne movies on one DVD yeah, for five bucks. They These do that kind guys. of stuff. But they've lately been trying to extend their reach a bit, and they have indeed done some decent releases. They recently re-released Metropolis, the Japanese anime, mm. uh, in a steelbox edition that was pretty fucking sweet. And like they've been doing some more and more stuff that's like like they're the first people who released the Shield on Blu-ray. Mm. You know, they get some good deals and do some interesting stuff. All right. Now that being said, this <laughs> series of films, which the previous one we did was Happy Birthday to Me on a, uh, on another show, but they. There's nothing extra here. No. Nothing of any kind. It is as bare bones as you get as a Blu-ray. It's a average transfer uh, of these films. The one thing you have going for the set, and I got to admit, it's kind of a cool thing, yeah. is the slip covers it comes with, yeah. which look like original, because all these films are 80s films, and it looks like... An old VHS An old tape. VHS tape and not, and that literally you would find in the video store that have the stickers you used yeah. to see on and videotapes. You see half of the thing is just the, the, the case itself and then the other half is the uh, the cartridge being pulled out. It's it's a very clever piece of marketing. Yeah. And I've seen other, uh, other DVD releases take a similar tack. I know that's what the Stranger Things box sets look like. Yeah, they're that, supposed to, and they're not the only ones who've done it. The MVD collection has been doing something kind of kind of similar. I think Ty we, West has also done that yeah. with some of his movies. But like this one, movie. I've never seen anyone quite as like like this takes it to the next level. Yeah, it really does. We're literally you see the VHS slipping out of the yeah. box cover, and I'm like, I appreciate that. That's pretty cool because this is when I remember these films from from renting right. them at your local video store in like 1983, which yeah. is when the first film we're talking about came out, which is. Oh boy, here we go. Crawl. Crawl. The uh, much crawl. anticipated when it came out, because I remember like, a, yeah. what was it? Uh, what was that? Fangoria kind of had like a, a, a sci-fi magazine that was oh, a lot yes, like Oh, I know which uh, one you mean. Starlog. Starlog, yes. They were all over Star-Log this shit. Loved it. And like, they were like, oh man, you should be so excited. And the studio Columbia was like, this is going to be our Star Wars killer. This is the one. They were so confident about this movie. Yeah. It was a huge deal when it came out. They were marketing all over the place. It's a British-American uh, cross-production that tries to cross together elements of Lord of the Rings and elements of Star Wars into a film that ultimately is a really boring, long slog of a fantasy film. It's a beautiful film that's kind of, that is boring and with some really good people behind the camera. I mean, Peter Yates is a fine director. He's Mm -hmm. done a lot of great work. Oh, yeah. Uh, Peter Shuzitsky, the DP, his previous film was a little movie called Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. I'm like, is this why he turned down Return of the Jedi so he could do Kroll? Robert Lovejoy, the editor, is the guy who edited... 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Shining, and Jim Cameron's Aliens. That guy couldn't cut this movie together in a way that was interesting. That's how dull this movie is. And the writer made Ice Pirates. Uh, (laughs) Need I say more? (laughs) Um, Okay, so first off, this guy who plays the lead role of Prince Colwyn, Ken Marshall, is like that one of those type of actors that at this point of his career, he's so ridiculously handsome that you almost don't believe he actually exists. Yeah. Like, they have him with, like, a, this is supposed to be a fantasy universe, but this guy clearly belongs to the hair club for men. He, <laughs> he's he got one of those beard things like you can get 80s. online. He's got, he's yeah. got, he's got, like, the fullest, most beautiful hair you've ever seen. He's got this beard that's 
just just trimmed to a degree to which science can't achieve. No. That's right. Yeah. There's a lot of things science can't achieve in this movie, which is really fucking weird <laughs> because this was billed as what I think they on the cover it said like uh, a movie light years beyond your imagination. You think this is going to be a space movie? The bad guys show up in a literal mountain that is a spaceship that lands. You go, "Oh, alien spaceships." Where's the spaceship stuff? Where's the where's the sci-fi element? They basically walk into a medieval universe that's populated by about forty people. The knights on armor, knights in armor on horses, horseback. Yeah, you know, it's like swords and sorcery. Yeah, there's there's that would be kind of cool, but we're led to believe that there's a prophecy that will allow the the uh, protagonist and his love interest to marry and one day raise a child that will rule the galaxy. And I have to assume that their child is the first person who's going to invent science. Because <laughs> nobody in this fucking world is like, hey, science, that's a thing. They're like, no, there's no sci-fi in this sci-fi yeah, movie. It's How like, are they supposed to rule the galaxy? It's, it's a spaceship. It lands on it. They've got lasers. And it clearly is run by a giant, like, kaiju demon. Yeah. And you're like, wait, where is that? What is happening with, with about this? eight dudes working for it? Yeah. Okay. So, like, it's a road it's a road trip. It's a it's a road horseback movie. Yes. Uh, with slowly this guy gathering together a group of misfits, uh, some of which are actually quite well known today. Yes, like Or a young Robbie Coltrane, mm-hmm. when he was still thin is a little strong, but when thinner. When he was barely big bone. Yes. And... Uh, Liam Neeson, who is literally unrecognizable. Oh, I recognized him. I did not. No. I was watching this going, I, I did not know till it was over that was Liam Neeson. Yeah. Well, like, he doesn't want you to remember this movie either. Sure. <laughs> well, no, I don't think anyone does. You know. um, and they're going uh, and the on the road. Freddie Jones, who's wasted in this. They're going on the road to try and find the, all the things to hit all the notches of the, of the stuff you got to do right. to eventually confront the beast, which runs the sci-fi castle that teleports from place to place once per day across the kingdom. So there's a lot of shit they got to do. And part of it is like they killed the, the, they didn't kill, they abducted the princess princess who is one of the most pointless female characters in any yes. film I have ever seen in my entire life. Like, like say what you will about Star Wars and Princess Leia. She is like woke as fuck yeah. and like a completely like very forward, like, like very accomplished character compared to this girl who does nothing She's but scream and complain. She is a damsel in dis- in distress. The worst possible way. Uh, Lisette Anthony, who I suspect if she, cause she was one of those actresses who was kind of on her way up. Yeah. Until this movie, and I suspect if it wasn't for this movie, she would have actually been a bigger star. I mean, and not, it didn't help that she was redubbed for whatever reason. Yeah, that was a weird choice. You know, because Colwyn is clearly British. Yeah, but, why would you, know, you redub? Yeah, I don't get that. They're like, we need an American girl. And again, I mean, her name is Lissa. <laughs> I keep thinking they're like, she's like Princess Leia, kids, only she doesn't do any of the things that make you endeared to Princess Leia. But you get, like, all these, like, very all stereotypical fantasy characters along the way, one of which I actually really like. There's the a character in here that plays a Cyclops, yeah. played by uh, Bernard Breslau, who kind of had a career of playing giant, like, like overly tall, monstrous-type guys. Mm-hmm. The poor guy has talked about this movie a lot. Like, his makeup, it was literally, he was completely blonde, right. and had to do action scenes and it was like what the fuck he hurt himself quite a bit playing this role but he's actually an awesome character an awesome character in a terrible movie and part of the problem with this movie is again it's not only unsure of how it wants to handle the blend of fantasy and sci-fi elements often forgetting to do it at all it also has the laziest story structure i've 
can recall in a long time. It's literally, hey, we got to go and save the day, but to do that, we need this thing. So let's go on this dangerous mission to get this thing. Cool, we did that. What's the next thing we got to do? Well, the next piece of the puzzle is to go do this thing. Oh, wait, that didn't work. Well, remember when I told you this was the only way? It turns out there's actually another way. Yeah. We just now get to... It's literally... They just do this, that like three times. Yes. It's just this <laughs> boring connective tissue to get you from one set piece to the next. And each individual set piece is lovingly designed and well executed. It just doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You you can't help but at a point just kind of check out and any sort of like connection to these characters, the storyline because of those qualities of it. And even worse, like this movie really sold itself on the weapon, which was called the glaive. The glaive. It's this gorgeous prop design. Of this sort of, like, giant head-sized throwing star with knives that come out of the end of it that's jeweled. It's a switchblade shuriken. Yeah, it's, it, that's, like, that's really cool-looking. That's a boomerang. It's badass. And the moment he gets it early on in the film, and you're like, yeah, now we're fucking talking. That shit's going to be badass. And then the guy's like, yeah, but don't use it. That's right. And I, what? It's not till the last, like, ten minutes of this movie right. he uses it. He gets to use it, like, once. And then that's it. It is the most impractical, <laughs> stupid-looking weapon of all time. I don't and agree with stupid-looking. iconic. Impractical, no, I'm sorry. No. You can't yes, grab that thing comfortably imp- and throw it Impractical, yes. yourself. Impractical, yes. Stupid-looking, I disagree. It's not even technically a glaive, but, you know, whenever I see glaive, all I can think of is Professor Frank. It's like, oh, hey, now we got to go and get the glaive and then take out the <laughs> beast and all the glaive. You know, it's like, who the hell... Again, this is the exact thing I'm talking about. There are individual moments in this movie that are just, like, great. You're like, that would have been great in a better movie, but unfortunately, it's in fucking Crawl. Some people love this shit, though, man. I I know people who think this movie is fantastic. Probably Brian Salisbury, to be fair. <laughs> God bless him. I we were never going to agree on some films, but and I'm just I don't even know, but I suspect this is a movie that would be totally up his yeah. alley. Uh, I there's so many great people who worked on this film. How did it end up being as thoroughly mediocre and forgettable I mean, that, as it is? It's not yeah. even considered a cult classic. It's it's only it's, by it's, some very few. People. I see so many times on things like this, like it bombed in the theaters. The critics hate it. But it's been reevaluated over the years and now has cult status. No one is saying that about no, no, Crawl. I have actually read that before. Have you? Okay. Yes, but let me tell you, folks, I have reevaluated Crawl and it still sucks. It still sucks. It's not a good movie. It is. If you like these type of films, I would argue it is definitely worth watching. It's, but you're not going to return to it. No. Yeah. It, it, it's amusing. This is a movie that could be remade. Why they haven't done that, I don't know. Now, a movie I genuinely enjoy, oh, despite huh. fully acknowledging this was a weak point in <laughs> superstar writer Shane Black's career, but it's still a relatively strong film for what it was. It's a weak point in Arnold Schwarzenegger's career, no question. It was marketed like, I mean, this was a huge was, release when yeah. it came out. This is the last action hero, and it was it was a really big deal for everyone who was, because Schwarzenegger was at the top of his Absolutely. game. Everybody was like, you did not not go see a Schwarzenegger John film. McTiernan, Schwarzenegger. John McTiernan yeah. directing Schwarzenegger. Shane Black. Yeah. Know, and with a, with a bio, with a story credit actually by, uh, uh, of all people, uh, William, a, with, William Goldman. William Goldman worked on this. Zach Penn was the story by, if you think a lot of people 
worked on this script, you're probably right. It tends to get credited to Shane Black, yeah. but it wasn't his story. And He basically it, wrote the dialogue, yeah. not the story. This movie feels like a lot of very smart people got together and tried to make something out of it, and then no one knew how to market it. Because this movie was marketed as like a typical kind of action film. If anything, this movie was before its time, because I think this sort of meta-narrative would now play really well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. This is really ahead of its time. Yeah. This movie would have performed much better today than it did back then, where everyone was kind of like, I'm not sure what you're doing here. Yeah. At the time, that idea of a, this hyper meta narrative i mean like like to the like this is ready player one of its time yeah. you know there's like it, they're just it's a movie that's all about arnold schwarzenegger movies yeah. with starring arnold schwarzenegger who is constantly referencing his own films yeah and, I mean, and, this is the kind of movie where a character sees f murray abraham and says you can't trust him jack he killed mozart yeah, yeah. you know because it acknowledges that this character is being played by an academy award winner it's that kind of movie where eventually Schwarzenegger will actually wrestle himself. You know, uh, try to explain this. Hope all right. So this is uh, God. What's the Woody Allen film I'm thinking of? Uh, Rose, Purple Rose of Cairo. Purple Rose of Cairo. It's an action movie. Purple Rose of that, Cairo. That is the best way to describe. <laughs> which is which? I know everyone's like, ah, come on, Chris. I haven't seen Purple Rose of Cairo. Okay, fine. Yeah. You should. That's one of my favorite Woody Allen films. It's like but, that moment in you know Buster Keaton's film where the guy walks out of the projection screen. Yeah, it's know? it's uh, this kid. He lives in a terrible area of New York City with his widowed mom. Uh, he is takes his comfort in watching action movies and being really into Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is indeed like is supposed to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's he is Arnold Schwarzenegger, Played Jack Slater. But he's into this series where he plays a L.A. cop, Jack Slater, who's a Jack Slater four, who's a ridiculously like exaggerated action hero. He right. is he's Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. Yes. He's that type of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's just so over the top, insanely, impossibly ridiculous. But he's, he's, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando in a Lethal Weapon movie. Yeah, that's pretty valid. Yeah. And, uh, so he's friends with the old guy who runs the local movie theater, which is kind of like winding down. It's, it's, it's run. Uh, and, uh, the guy's like, well, here, uh, I, there's a whole storyline about like, I'll give you this magic ticket that was given to me, I'm sure, by, by Houdini. And I'm sure it doesn't mean anything. Who didn't but, believe in magic. Yeah. And, uh, he's watching the new Jack Slater film in a private screening of the new one that's coming out. And he does the thing he's supposed to rip the ticket and it magically transports him inside the world of the film, right, right in the back of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger's car in the middle of a big action scene car chase, which by the way, is a really good car chase. Yes. It's quite well I mean, shot. But yeah, also ridiculous. The kind of movie yeah. thing where you just shoot a car and it automatically blows up. Yeah. And this kid, because he has been raised on all these movies, knows what all the conventions are, knows how to get around it. And the joke, of course, is that Arnold Schwarzenegger is playing Jack Slater, who doesn't realize he's actually a fictional character playing Jack Slater. He, he doesn't realize he's, that this is not a real world and this yeah. is fictional. He and it's, it's normal to drive this way. And it's this kid <laughs> just constantly trying to convince like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jack Slater that you, this is not real. None of this is real. Like, like that guy, like you're saying, like, it's like, Oh my God, that's, that's the guy who played like Salieri in, yeah. in Amadeus. You can't trust him. Like I mean, stuff like that. That's coming into it or him knowing inherently like, 
no, this is what's going to happen because this is what always happens the in these movies. The police chief always just screams at him because that's what he does. You go to, like, the the police department and there's one of the best gags in the movie is, like, the front desk where they assigned the mismatched buddy partners for movies. You know, it's like, hey, it's a rabbi and a cop. You know, it's this guy and that guy. And the, even a literal cartoon uh, uh, was it a fox? I forget. A cartoon cat, I think. Cat. It was yeah. a cartoon cat. Who's a detective on the and force. And nobody thinks it's weird that there is a cartoon <laughs> cat in this universe because they don't know they're in a movie. Um, okay, so three favorite things about this movie. First off, uh, Charles Dance playing the yes. villain, who's like a, a secondary thug in the film, but he ends up becoming kind of the primary villain because he gets a, his hands on the ticket and realizes that he's living in a fictional world before Schwarzenegger even does yeah. and escapes to the real world. Uh, two, Tom Noonan has yeah. a role as the, the, the antagonist from uh, the previous film, uh, the, Ripper. the Ripper, who's this like face disfigured, like horrible serial killer who killed his son. Right. And n- that becomes a thing in the whole end of the movie where he comes back to it's actually kind of awesome. Uh, and three, oh my God, there's a moment where Ian McKellen comes in playing death from the, the, seventh, from seal. the seventh seal that yeah. just has a wonderful little moment yeah. in the film. Where Even I was though like, it makes no fucking sense. Yeah. It's like, I do. I mean, you're supposed to be a fictional you're character. You're a fictional character, and now you are the real Now you're of death. actually death. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It, 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 but it's, it's a great moment. It's though. a great moment at a time when few people knew who Ian McKellen or Charles Dance were, uh, really early roles in America for them. And, uh, you know, one of the best gags in this movie, and at the time I kind of wrestled with it. Now I kind of am okay with it. At the time it seemed a little disrespectful. Uh, you see uh, 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 Olivier's uh, version of Hamlet, the kids watching it, and his, the, the teacher is played by Joan Plowright, his widow, this was a few years after Olivier died, and the joke is that this kid is so bored watching Hamlet, he imagines Jack Slater in Hamlet suddenly taking on, you know, there's something rotten in Denmark, and of course starts just shooting people up. And I felt so sad for Joan Plowright going, you might recognize uh, Laurence Olivier from other such films as, you know, this and that, or, or maybe from those commercials, or as Zeus in Clash of the Titans. <laughs> and it just seems so... Sad and disrespectful to reduce Olivier, who'd only been dead a couple years, to a joke. It is a funny sequence, but though, is, regardless. You know, There's a cu- couple of really funny sequences and a lot of really well-placed cameos. Like Tina Turner yes, as the mayor of L.A., which I'm like, that's great. Danny DeVito voices the, the cartoon cat. cat. Uh, there's a great scene where they're in a blockbuster in in in, Arnold Sch- in Jack Slater's world yeah. where there's a stand-up display for right. Terminator 2, but it's Sylvester. Stallone playing him, and I was like, I, I love that yeah. moment and so much. And it also pays off a joke in the movie where the kid like goes, "I know this is a fictional world because that woman is not too hot to be working at Blockbuster, <laughs> yeah. where all the women in this universe look like models." This is the whole convincing like thing where he's like, "Look, look at this! This woman works at a coffee shop, and she's wearing like this dress that you only see on fashion shows. Right. Like, what has happened? Every woman is hot as hell." Yeah, <laughs> this movie was just very poorly marketed, and it is a bit of a hot mess. But it's a hot mess that was a little bit ahead of its time. And this hurt a lot of people's careers, I think. Uh, it didn't do anybody any favors. This was yeah. really basically peak Schwarzenegger, peach McTiernan. Uh, they kind of peaked at that moment. 
And I think Shane Black had, too, to an extent. These were the guys who could do no well, wrong. Well, Shane Black was on his way up at this moment. Yeah, but this was a major road bump yeah, on that way. This was, like, probably the highest paid he had ever yeah, been at this It point. didn't help that this opened against uh, Jurassic Park. No. It was part of it was a bad weekend to open, yeah. obviously, in retrospect. Uh, it also is, like, it's far from a perfect film. No. I'm not saying this is a great film, but I am saying that if you've avoided this film because of the legend of how badly it bombed, you're actually kind of doing yourself a disservice. This is a fun movie that has a lot of really rewarding moments in it. If you ever consider yourself a Schwarzenegger fan, this is way better than a lot of Schwarzenegger's other films. And and Art Carney of all fucking Last film appearance. Last film by Art Carney. Now, I know a lot of people are going to go, Art who? Yeah. But, you know, playing (laughs) playing Jack Slater's favorite second cousin. Anthony Quinn is the main crime boss. You're like, what the hell is going on? Mercedes Rule. Yeah. Come off of, of uh, not Casino, but uh, Goodfellas. I mean, there's so many good people in this movie, and it's just it's yeah, all it's, it's all it's off. It's one of those films like if it had had like maybe another better like n- more experienced writer come in and fix some stuff. Yeah, this could have been a truly great film, yeah. and it is like way ahead of its time. I, like I said, I still insist that this had come out ten years later, this would have been a much bigger hit yeah. than I, it was. I think so, but uh, it is worth going and visiting. And that is the second film that we were talking about from the Mill Creek fake videotape yes. series. The third one, oh. I'm not sure I can recommend to any th- anyone but the most hardcore of both Chuck Norris fans, which I'm sorry guys, I'm not I just can't go with you on that yeah. one. I'm I'm just I have, I think Chuck Norris has always been a horrifically bad actor. He's not even that good of an action star. No. All he has going for him is inheriting a meme that started with Vin Diesel. Look it up. <laughs> to, to be fair, he had a, a burgeoning career long before memes were a thing. Yeah, I'm just saying that, like, I even back in the day, I was like, I don't get the whole Chuck no, Norris no, thing. No, nor did I. But this yeah. 1982 movie is an oddball moment in his career called yeah. Silent Rage. The other people who might like this are people who love the Michael Myers Halloween series mm-hmm. because this was definitely taking a look at that oh, sure. and going, what if we did Michael Myers versus Chuck Norris? And that is the – to some degree, the angle they're coming for is – Silent Rage is definitely a horror sci-fi action film. Yeah, it starts weirdly. off with that same kind of trick too where you see a murder play out. Uh, but you see it sort of almost through – it's not quite first person, but it's a long, continuous tracking shot through this house as you see this guy slowly start to break down and decide to start murdering people. That is the best sequence in this film. It's, it's actually a genuinely good and creepy sequence. It's and actually good, and it only gets fucked up when Chuck Norris shows up. Okay, and Chuck Norris, by the way, interestingly, first time he ever played like a Texas Ranger type yes. character, which obviously kind of became a thing that went on from there yeah. on. But this was like, he's like, the guy is like the elder statesman on the force. He's not even that old at this no. point, but you know, he is the guy that everybody else looks forward to, up to, including his deputy, Stephen First, which yeah. is like, wow, Stephen? Stephen First, yeah. uh, you don't the the, the, seen him in a the while. late Stephen First, ah, that's right. by the way, but who I knew better from. I always think of him as from Babylon Five. I thought ah, he was yeah. so wonderful on that. But he was on he was in Animal House playing Flounder and the spinoff Delta House. I think he was one of the few actors. He was always that the funny fat guy. He's the funny fat guy yeah, of this his would time. Be, uh, this would be a uh, well, he's not fat 
anymore, the guy who played Newman. If they were making this movie now, yeah. that's the guy. Is who he not played. fat anymore? No, he lost a lot of weight. Wayne Knight lost. Yeah, a lot I of just weight. saw him in something recently where he was like working in art gallery. Oh, he was in Blind Spotting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't see that, but but oh looks my god, now. you haven't seen Blind Spotting? I know, I know. I haven't been able to borrow. it. I'm just going to kill you right now. That's fine. You don't but deserve only to if live. you can do it. In, only if you can kill me the way Chuck Norris would. I cannot. You have to give me, which means you have to kick me in the face. Roundhouse kicks. Roundhouse uh, kick into a well. So anyway, there's the killer. He dies. They they like Chuck Norris takes like with like surprisingly little effort ends up taking him out with multiple gunshots. Uh, even though he's like, no, don't kill him. Come on, we're cops. You're not supposed to just murder people, which is not usually like Chuck Norris. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so the the guy in question is brought to the scientific institute where he's very pretty much dead, and these scientists turn out to be like. Evil scientists, if you will, not like diabolically evil, but like, more this like is a chance to test our serum. Yeah, it's yeah. science. It's it. Def, it science is is beyond ethics. Right? Uh, where they like to do the thing, inject him with the serum, and it turns out it just he instantly heals wounds. Yeah. And they're like, well, he's never going to regain consciousness. He's a vegetable, but we can test out his body for this stuff. But of course, he regains consciousness and decides that his whole revenge is going to be out for Chuck Norris and everyone that he knows and loves. And so it's him chasing after. After these people, but the highlight of this movie has absolutely nothing to do with him. It's a scene where Chuck Norris goes to a biker yeah. bar and beats the shit out of like 30 dudes yeah. in the bar that is so ridiculously and badly shot. It's so badly shot. Like by today's standards, I'm just embarrassed watching it. it I'm it's like, still oh my better God. than any other fight scene in this movie. But it's like it doesn't match up with even the quality of the fight scenes it in doesn't say match Roadhouse up with the character. <laughs> because that character, when we are introduced to him, he tries to take out this guy who instantly gets a jump on him. They kind of wrestle. They, you know, it's awkward. He chases him outside. The guy gets a jump on him again, and then it's like. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. They're not leaning into Chuck Norris as a martial artist. He's just a Texas sheriff, and that's how he would fight. And then, like, halfway through the movie, they're like, oh, fuck. People are showing up to see Chuck Norris do some karate. I guess we better suddenly have this guy inexplicably be great at karate. Yeah, and, and like, literally, like, like single-handedly beat up an entire yeah. bar full of bikers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and that's the kind of thing you see in a Chuck Norris movie. But But here's where this movie is really so lazy. Okay, so we've already established that there is this crazy guy. He has a mental breakdown. He goes into, you know, a psychotic episode and is taken down. Arriving at the scene is his psychiatrist, played by Ron Silver. Yay, Ron Silver. Ron Silver. Who then takes this guy over to this hospital because it turns out Ron Silver is also a surgeon. But that's just so he can be in the room so he can have this discussion of ethics with his evil boss. It also turns out that the sheriff and his deputy don't realize that there's this high-tech facility inside their little town that they just think it's a hospital. And it turns out that Chuck Norris's ex-girlfriend, whom he hasn't seen in six years, is the receptionist there, which I think if you live in a small town, you would know where she worked. And it turns out that that is, she is also the sister of Ron Silver. And she also lives with Ron Silver and his wife because that's going to become a plot point later. It's like within like five minutes, they just said, you know what, fuck it. Let's just tie it all together. It's one lazy okay. way out of But what's important another. to mention about everything you just said is that that relationship leads to maybe the oh. single most embarrassing romance slash sex montage in the history yes. of action movies. It was so bad. And it's, I mean, it is laugh out loud bad. Yeah. 
that, and it goes on and on. That Chuck Norris swore to never do another love scene in one yeah. in a movie again after this. He was like, I he apologized to his audience publicly, and everybody specifically for how terrible and out of place that whole sequence is. You know, it, it, it's it's a movie that. I remember seeing as I was a, when I was a kid. I remember it being popular. I understand why some people like the idea of taking this sort of horror element, horror slasher element, unstoppable like, killer versus yeah. the martial artist. Except they don't use the martial arts enough. They don't use the horror enough. This is about half of a good movie. I, I still strongly argue that there is somewhere a market for this movie, but with properly done, well-shot martial arts yeah. of the Indonesian super gory variety versus like some sort of like this. Yeah, unstoppable killer versus the the ultimate martial artist cop. I would watch the shit out of like the guy from the uh, the raid sure. versus somebody playing like Michael Myers. I would like, yeah, I, that's great. Do that. I want to see that. Or versus zombies, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know anything that's unstoppable. I think that's yeah. your key. You just want a guy to fight a guy who's unstoppable, not some guy you can just do do a roundhouse kick to the face, knock him into a well, and go. Well, I guess we're I done. Guess that's Even though up. I literally just pumped him full of bullets. But somehow kicking him in the face down a well is going to stop it. Well, I mean, he's like, he may be unstoppable, but that doesn't mean he's got climbing experience. Yeah, maybe he can't swim. Maybe he drowns. Yeah, I don't know. But Rift Tracks does a version of this. If you're a Rift Tracks fan, you can download their version of it, which, quite frankly, is the way I would recommend to watch this film. It's bad, but it's the kind of bad... It's kind of fun. Yeah. It's un. There's nothing really good about this movie no. on any level, but it has transcended that to the point where wow, it's kind of fun. Okay, now I don't think I saw this one. Uh, the next movie is Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion, uh, which is an Arrow release uh, that I did not hand off to you. All right, so the title of this film, obviously, the Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion, obviously is a reference to a considerably better and not even vaguely similar film that uh, came out in 1970 in Italy called Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, which Criterion put out a fantastic copy of. Highly recommend Italian cinema movie. Absolutely. Probably one of my top ten favorite Italian films of all time. It it is truly great, but something tells me this movie is not. (laughs) No, it's not, like, completely terrible or anything. This is, like, early giallo uh ish yeah. but not with really the horror aspect as well it's uh okay so it's this bored housewife who's of course ridiculous there any other kind? ridiculously hot and red-haired okay, right. Italians love redheads man hey, you know i'm with them on that one uh who starts getting who is in, right off the beginning is is sort of attacked by this man who like looks like he's going to rape her. He's cutting open her clothes and stuff, but then is like, ha ha, I'm not going to rape you, but I think you should know your husband is a murderer. <laughs> and then leaves, and she's like, what the fuck just happened? And uh, so she's kind of thinks, okay, that was just a crazy guy. I, got, I guess I got lucky, until it turns out a man that her husband used to owe an enormous amount of money to was found dead. And she starts asking herself questions like, wait, what if that was actually something to that? And and she starts getting telephone calls from the attacker play, who even plays her a tape recording of her husband discussing killing the guy. And she's like, I don't know what to do. And he says, if you don't come to my house and make love to me, 
I will play, I will give this recording to the police, which she deeply loves her husband, but is like, and goes through a period of like, what should I do here? Like, what is the right moral decision to let this happen? And my husband who, despite that he, it sounds like he really did this. I still love and stand by him and don't want him to go to jail or cheat on him by having sex with this man. And that is like a definitely a weird storyline from the even for Giallo. Um, it sounds like a modest proposal only for Giallo. It's a really odd, not like other Giallo films. It's not terribly well executed. It is stylish looking. It's got all the things you expect of that sort of like like late sixties, early seventies, like awesome clothes and awesome looking houses. Like my wife watched part of this and she was like, "I want to live in that house right now." <laughs> like I love everything about it. Uh, this goes on uh, with like further levels of blackmail until, and this is where this actually does get kind of interesting. And it's not till like almost the beginning of the third act. It's established that maybe this guy doesn't even exist, that the entire experience is just in her mind, that none of this is real. And it turns into a little bit of a mind fuck. It makes some mistakes along the way of, of playing some cards that lead to the, the conclusion where you're like, okay, well, if you hadn't done that, this would have been more interesting. If you hadn't already told us that this is the case, then it would have been significantly cooler. It's one of those films I could actually see someone doing a remake of today, not making those mistakes right. and making a genuinely cool movie out of. But as it is, it kind of falters. It's very slow moving. It is very stylish. It does have some incredibly beautiful people in it. Uh and it, it has some things in it I've never seen in another Giallo film. But if you're looking for, you know, the post-Argento type of Giallo, this ain't it. This is like, the you know, it's a murder mystery type of thing with a, a certain amount of twistiness that's just not terribly well executed. But I feel like for people who are interested in this genre, it is, it's more so than a lot of these we've covered. It is definitely worth seeing. Um, I, I did not love this. I actually really genuinely dislike the way they handle the end and the wrap up. It like, it feels like it's in such a hurry to get to the double twist that it just kind of, there it is. It happened. And it's like, okay, that's like, and and then a certain amount of afterwards of like, well, you know, all that shit happened to me, but I feel great. (laughs) Like it just takes you out of the whole thing, but whatever it, it, you know who, if you're of the audience for this thing, it's released by arrow who I deeply love, and I love the, the the way they fix this up. It's really pretty looking fix up on this film. There's an audio commentary. Uh, there's a newly edited aggregation of of interviews uh, with the actors uh, and the director. There's a th- appreciation of the film's score, which is actually quite good here well, by Ennio Morricone. So of course it's good. Uh, there is a Q and A from a festival of fantastic films in 2016 from Manchester and then trailers in an image gallery. Uh, It's interesting, but if this isn't already something that you know, that is something that that's one of the genres that you like actively pursue, trying to see every last thing in, then yeah, it's pretty skippable. Let's go on to something that is not skippable. And in fact, uh, screener squad covered this for the site earlier this year. And were like each like patients and Justin who saw this were privately emailing me going, this is really good. You should see yeah. this if you get the chance. And I'm glad that I got the opportunity, which is a, 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 a German film called The Captain. 
Um, and I'm going to actually, I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to hand this over to, sure. to, uh, to, uh, what's your name again? Marco. Yeah, uh, <laughs> to talk about the plot. To be. I just found Marco's clothes and, uh, now it's flawless. Everyone <laughs> it's just assumes. Very convincing, Aaron. Uh, yeah, it's a, a convincing simulacrum. Uh, the captain, this is a filmmaker I'm not familiar with, but this film had been on my radar. I missed the opportunity to see it. Very curious about it. More intrigued when patience of all people. Love this movie. It's a, yeah, a black and white German period piece film that is decidedly not a horror film. Yes. Although it has certainly things that are horrifying about it. It's horrifying. Uh, um, that I'm, that's an art film and I'm like, patience like this This film? This is a movie I obviously will like and patience will not. And yet she did. And that got my interest even higher. This is a written and directed by a guy named Robert Schwenke. Uh, filmmaker I'm not terribly familiar yeah, with. His career has been very, um, yeah, it's very mixed. All uh, over the place. He's a German uh, filmmaker. Yeah, but he's done a lot of American stuff. He did yeah. The Time Traveler's Wife, which I actually thought was underrated, yeah. but I get why it's you not read, for everyone. I mean, if you listen to the commentary, this guy, he was born and raised in Germany, I believe, but he sounds American. He's a straight up English speaker. He did RIPD, which was terrible. Yeah. But this, but this is, is this is the best thing he's ever done. Oh, I'm sure. yeah. Uh, this is the story based on a true story uh, where a a, uh, a German soldier, a private by the name of Winnie, Willie uh, Harold. We don't know if he's defected or if he's separated from his unit. It's a bit ambiguous. But when the film starts off, he is being chased by military police. Uh, this is a time when it's about two weeks before the end of World War II. There's a lot of desertion. A lot of these deserters are running around the countryside, looping, uh, looting, raping, and pillaging. And so they're allowed to be shot on sight. This guy manages to get away finds himself uh, in an old German uh, military vehicle that has a captain's uniform in it. At first, he puts it on just to be cold, uh, just to stay warm. But before long, he realizes that he can actually get through this situation by pretending to be something he's not. And before long, he has picked up other deserters uh, who have signed up with his... Uh, what they're calling the uh, the Herald Detachment. And this gives them license to pretty much do whatever the hell they want. Uh, this is a film, really, that's more than anything. It's about authority and the way we just blindly follow it and the way that kind of power becomes corrupting. Because this guy has to do some terrible things, and the people that he is sort of forced to uh, per persecute are no different than he is. The only thing that separates him and his loose band of... Uh, of uh, <laughs> rather uh, misfit detachment guys. Uh, the only thing that separates him from these other people is that he wears that uniform and everybody in this film kowtows to that uniform or allows themselves to be compromised because they just blindly follow the authority of it. It's a hard film to describe because at its root, it's very simple, but this is, this is beautiful. This is capital C cinema for me. Uh, it's rare that you get a film that, yes, it has an important story, it has, you know, heavy, weighty themes, but the filmmaking steps up to that. I mean, this film is actually gorgeously shot in black and white, in 235, has some very interesting uses of color, uh, and a yeah, great score. A few moments it decides to go color have meaning. Yeah, yeah. And, and an ending that I think will throw a lot of people, but feels earned to me. Uh, this is a film that's really trying to tell you something about... It's very easy to go, well, that happened back then. But this is really a film that's saying, hey, this could happen today. Uh, and it's interesting that all of these characters, 
one of the key moments is when he ends up, uh, this Captain Harold winds up at a, uh, at a prison for uh, looters, defectors, basically. German, a German prison for German, German soldiers right. who have arguably defected. Yes, and the uh, German officers there are sick of this. Why are we wasting resources on this scum? We can't just release them because they'll go back to looting and pillaging, but we don't want them to fall into the hands of the enemy. Then you have the warden who reports to the Department of Justice, you know, saying, wait a minute, we can't just execute these people. There's a way to do it. In comes a guy like the captain who just says, hey, I have the authority, and he plays the oldest con in the book. He's like, I have the authority from the Fuhrer himself yeah. to do whatever I want. And who, is, who is certainly not really reachable in the last two yeah, weeks exactly. of the war. He takes advantage of the chaos around him, and he plays that old trick where it's like, hey, you want to <laughs> get on the phone and call our boss and ask him why you stopped his hand-picked lieutenant, you know, and why this important vital mission is not going to get done? And, of course, because no one wants to take accountability – they say, okay, fine. And all of the other uh, officers, they get to do the horrible things they want because this guy gives them a blank check. He, his authority becomes a blanket uh, for all the horrible shit. The more you talk do. about this, the more it sounds like it's about the current Trump administration. You know, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't get too heavy-handed about that. It does that, not. It does but not. it is one of the things that's interesting, and the special features on here are great because uh, there's got a lot of interviews uh, with the director, but his commentary is genuinely interesting. Yeah, there's a 31-minute uh, Q&A with the director, Richard Swanke, who does one of the most informative Q&As I've seen on one of these in quite some time, who very direct – because so often I see these people ask a question that's very direct, and they find a way to kind of dodge around it and talk about something else. This guy does not do no. that. He gets into the nitty-gritty of what exactly he was thinking, what he thought certain things meant. He's to some degree – not wildly so, but somewhat self-depreciating, I even think, yeah. where he's like, I'm not sure if it worked or not type of stuff. Yeah. Uh, like he's not coming out of the box saying, yeah. I know this is a masterpiece. But in its own way, it kind of is a minor masterpiece. I think this is a, an instant classic. And I think what comes across with Schwenke is that he has done his homework. Mm. I mean, he's been working on this for many years. And he said the impetus for this film was that he had seen uh, the under, the uh, the downfall. I was going to say the underfall. Yeah. Uh, the downfall, which is... Or just downfall. Uh, the downfall. Yeah, downfall, which if anybody knows about it, it's the one with the great uh, German actor uh, Bruno Ganz playing mm. Adolf Hitler. Everybody else will know it as the source for the hilarious, angry Hitler meme. Yeah. But Schwenke saw that film, uh, and being of German descent, he said he was offended by it. He says, because that is a very typical convention in lots of German cinema post-World War II, which is, okay, you can say that it was Hitler's fault and like this sort of ideological group of people close to the top but the Wehrmacht and everybody else down, they were just people following orders. They were just kind of going along. They they were good people, etc. And Schwedke says, no, fuck that. Yeah. Uh, all of these people are complicit. That idea that, well, if it's just a couple guys at the top, you see that anybody in this situation, given that power, given that authority, uh, will follow it blindly. Yeah. And no, nobody's explored this idea from this viewpoint as thoroughly since ju judgment at Nuremberg, yeah. I thought, of like asking that question, how do you th assume you're not culpable just because you were following orders? Right. You and, know? you know, it, and the, we see that with the character of the captain. Like I said, everybody kind of uses him as a shield. You know, they, they, uh, and some of his own men 
are not convinced he's telling the truth. Right. Some yeah. of them don't give a shit. And so they don't give a shit because, hey, so long as we're th- with this guy, that gives us a blanket license to do whatever the fuck we want. And, of course, you see it just spiral increasingly out of control Which, as the lie just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Most interestingly, this is a true story. Yeah. Like, you can look this up online and go, like, holy crap, this is – with some dramatic conventions added. Sure. But – Ultimately, this is pretty damn close to what, as far as they know, actually happened with this guy. And it's really startling. This is the first movie we've seen about it. (laughs) And I think one of the reasons why Schwenke made it was that he felt that a lot of German cinema did not want to deal with these issues. They don't, you don't want to think grandpa was complicit. And it kind of makes the argument of like, well, look, everybody, nobody, any asshole can get up and say, I'm the Fuhrer. The only thing that makes that guy the Fuhrer is that everybody agrees, yes, that's what we're going to call you. Right. And nobody challenges the captain's supposed credentials because ultimately they all benefit from uh, his authority. Uh, this is a brilliant film, and I, I don't want to talk too much more about it because I'll just start rambling. But yeah, this, this are, was so good. This is my pick of the week. It, it is quite excellent, and I, I feel like it's not boring. It, no. it moves rather quickly. It, you're constantly asking yourself, my God, where is this going to go? It has huge surprises that happen along the way. There's a, the whole a bombing sequence yeah. that is so startling and like right. the discom- discomforting. Filmmaking on display here. I mean, there's there's shots in here that I would love to see just frames or little this, gifs of. I'm glad he did not cast Ryan Reynolds as the captain. You know? <laughs> I'm just teasing. I like Ryan Reynolds, yeah. but I'm because he made R.I.P.D., which yes. should be forgotten and never seen again. But by hey, you know, ever. sometimes you make some bad movies and that allows you to make some good ones. It's true. Sometimes you do work for hire, which I hope is all that R.I.P.D. was. <laughs> Excuse me. We drink beer during this podcast brought by Circle Brewery. Thank you. Yeah. You know, in Japan, you would have been giving a compliment to our sponsor. In America, I am. Yeah, you go. Uh, all right. So our next film is a little art sci-fi film that came out at Tribeca Film Festival last year. That Screener Squad also did a review for that they also liked called Jonathan, which was, I believe when it played it at uh, Tribeca, it was called Duplicate mm. instead, which I don't think is a great name because yeah. it, it gives you the idea it means something that is not accurate yeah. for, makes you think it's a clone movie or something. Yeah. Jonathan itself is a little bit misleading as well, or a little bland, but it is to the point. Ansel Elgort yeah. plays a guy who lives two lives. He is a... Uh, living a fictionally psych- psychological uh, existence. This doesn't actually, as near as I can tell from looking into it, there's nothing like this that exists. But the movie suggests that there is a condition where someone can live two completely separate personalities in the same body that have very specific times of day that they shift into the other personality. Right. Well, this is actually uh, something you see. Uh, Jonathan, who is our sort of protagonist, it's really a dual role by Ansel Elgort because yeah. by day he is Jonathan. He works at an architectural firm. Uh, by night, his body gets transferred over to, I think it's John, Jack, just John, John yeah. who is his alter ego. As we find out that as a child, Jonathan was, uh, he had this kind of dual personality and with the help of his uh, therapist and uh, Pat, uh, uh, Patricia uh, Clarkson, Clarkson what she does is she comes up with a compromise. She implants a chip in his head that kind of allows those two personalities to switch over. Yeah. Previously, they were constantly popping in and out. Here, there's, they're on a fixed schedule. The problem, of course, with that is 
Jonathan can't ever really commit to his job and get bigger assignments because half of his life has to be spent as John. John, on the other hand, wants a girlfriend, but he realized there's an agreement that we can't have a girlfriend because right. that's going to be too They awkward. can have sex. They, they have can't sex, be in a relationship. But nothing meaningful. And as they start off every day, imagine yourself waking up and watching a video of yourself telling you what you did the night before. Right. So they kind of keep informed of each other's lives. But Jonathan starts waking up more and more tired. He's feeling kind of hungover. And he realizes that John has himself kind of been leading a double life and uh, been burning the, the bridges at both ends. And now he's paying the price for it. And he gets burning the confront. bridges at both ends. I, I'm, I'm a little drunk. Burning the candle at both ends. <laughs> burning bridges. I burn bridges on both ends. That's my way of I like out. it. I feel like that should be a new expression, but I don't think yeah. it would mean. This I meant situation. burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. He, it turns out he's partying. He's got a girlfriend that he's seriously committed to. He's got yeah, Suki Waterhouse. He's got friends. And suddenly he's like, dude, you're out having a good time. And in the morning, I got to get up and go to work and I feel like shit. So all this comes out in the open yeah. and there's a major confrontation between, between the two of them. And uh, Jonathan, who is the primary personality in the film, like John, we only ever see either from behind yeah. or we see the videos he's filmed for Jonathan. So this right. film is almost exclusively from Jonathan's point Correct. of view. Like Jonathan is – Honestly, kind of curious after the fact, even after he's agreed, okay, you're right. I need to break this off, which he reluctantly ends up agreeing to do, but is curious about it and ends up himself getting into a relationship right. with Suki Waterhouse, having to explain to her finally what the scenario is here, what, how this all works, that he is in fact two people in one. Uh, and I feel like there's a point around there that this film for me went a little bit off the rails. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a very it takes that premise and plays it really. St this sounds like a sci-fi film, but it's not really. No. It has that sci-fi element. They introduce it very early on. There's not a lot of you know techno babble. It's just like, hey, in the future, this is a thing. Here's how we resolve this issue. This is a drama between two guys who are essentially brothers and have fallen apart. And, and you know, at, the reason he goes to meet the girlfriend is he says, fine, I'll, I'll ditch the girlfriend. But he becomes so angry and depressed that he stops communicating with it. And Jonathan's not used to his brother not communicating yeah, to it. That's not been their life ever. Yeah. So he goes to meet the, the girlfriend and says, look, who, of course, is freaking out because it's exactly the same dude. But he's like, I'm not the same guy. Could you please help me get my brother back? And before long, they start having a relationship it, this film kind of goes into some weird territory, and you're right. It, it wants to be a drama, but that drama doesn't always work for me. But it's a great performance from Ansel Elgort. It who is. Has to play two characters. No, I enjoyed Ansel Elgort, Elgort more than I have in his previous roles. Who have always thought he found him a little bland. Yeah, and I, I still don't think he's like next level no. or anything here. But this is the best work I've seen yeah. him do as an and actor. Jonathan allows him to be bland. Yeah, it's very purposeful that the Jonathan persona is the bland. I dude. think that's one of the problems of this film, though, is because. I wanted to see more John, John's who is by far character. the more interesting character. And the film constantly teases you about it, but you never get to. And I'm like, why isn't this movie divided up between the two different viewpoints to some degree? It, it feels like somebody in the script writing phase went, no, that would be too hard. Maybe so. I, I feel like there's a much better film hiding inside of this film, which by the end, I was like, eh, it's one of those low budget 
indie, vaguely sci-fi films that's really just a character piece that doesn't really know where it wants to go and ends up with a sort of shrug. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's one of those films where it's like, oh, their healing has occurred. Somebody has yeah. gotten, there's been a sacrifice made. Somebody has healed. But part of the problem is you can't really buy into the premise because it, it's just so inherently insane. I, it, this should have been better than it was. I do think the performances are really good, although Clarkson is 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 hamming it up a little more than I suspected that was the role called for. Maybe so. Um, I mean, she's, she's this close to being a mad scientist, except she's kind of matronly. I feel like this should have chosen one way or the other to go, to get more super sci-fi or more, com- more of a complex drama. And it never really... Ag- it, like chooses to glom onto being either one. It just wants to ride down the middle and ultimately get kind of a milk a toast yeah. experiment of a film. Yeah. Uh, I, I enjoyed it, but yeah, I'm not going to seek it out again anytime soon. Well, let's talk about the re the, not re-release. I'm sorry. The release uh, on Blu-ray and 4k of the, uh, I said re-release because it's Halloween. Right, uh, it still confused. always annoys me when Halloween they do that. For God's sakes, change the title a little Halloween bit, add a colon and something else. Like, it's like it's, unless it's, you're Peter Gabriel, you don't get to do your first four albums and just call them all Peter Gabriel. <laughs> exactly. But, but this is almost what they're trying to do. It's like, forget all that other stuff. There's Halloween and there's Halloween. That's all that matters. I, it kind of annoys me because there, there's something about it that's in, inherently arrogant. It's a little precious uh, uh, of like calling like a, a like this film that is doing the new hot thing, which new yeah. films being announced now are doing the same thing, including Ghostbusters three, yeah. which they say disavows like like everything else but Ghostbusters yeah, one. It's, um, it's not a bad idea. It's, it's there's no film in the Halloween universe ever existed except for the first one, according to this new film by David Gordon Green, traditionally. Not known even vaguely for horror films, no. uh, but written by him, uh, Jeff Radley, and comedian Danny McBride, who, yeah. uh, according to him, and I've actually got to talk to him at Fantastic Fest, and he's like, yeah, straight up, I'm obs- I've always been obsessed with Halloween. Like, written by them in a completely not trying to do some sort of meta comedy. They're like, this is the way we kind of wish that the film series had gone, best case scenario. And getting John Carpenter on board, who to be fair, has not been on board with any of the sequels past three. Yeah. Like, has been, like, nothing to do with them. And yeah. I mean, and, and there's there's definitely a case of, with, with the Halloween franchise, yeah. it definitely ran out of steam a while ago. Yeah. Originally, Halloween is a very simple idea. That, of course, is its beauty, its elegance, is, is the simplicity of it. With every sequel, you gum that up by having to explain more things and then provide motivations for Michael until at some point, you know, Lori was his sister, but now actually it turns out he's being possessed by, you know, some ancient Celtic demon that's being controlled by a cult. You guys covered this in far more detail. All, all, all that point has Deliberations of Doom. They all have their it's sure. entertainment value. Yes, our show Deliberations of Doom reviewed all the movies. Yeah. Uh, I think there's certainly entertainment value in all of them, not in the Rob Zombie ones, mind you, which I still find grotesque and unpleasant, but that's my opinion. I know some people disagree with me. Um, But this makes a clean break. But this is a clean break, which I feel like this is the only thing you could do to save this series at this point. And and, and it did indeed. This performed extremely well. Both critically and with audiences, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis returning, even though, yes, I know, in the previous continuity, she's not alive anymore. It's, I, 
I'm very of mixed of, of multiple minds on this film because in some ways I really admire what it did and what it's trying to do. In other ways, it, it really drops the ball for me personally. There's a lot of stuff in this movie I straight up do not like at all. Like the whole thing with the, the British podcasters yeah. coming in as a subplot I thought was annoying and unnecessary. Or and a device. Just a device to get stuff from point A to point B. And there's a whole thing with like all the teenagers who are like just all have body count written on their forehead yeah. that are just kind of like, okay, why are we not spending more time with Jamie Lee Curtis? Who, to be fair, I don't want to make the argument she's barely in this because she's in this a lot. She's... But she's but Laurie. Queen she's Laurie Strode from that first film. Who all these years have passed. Like I said, once again, Michael did not like like he the, the he whole hospital thing captured. did not happen. He was captured and brought to jail. Has been in jail this whole time. But she's been convinced this whole time that much like uh, Doctor what's his face Loomis. Loomis, he is the personification of pure evil. Not her brother, mind you, yeah. because that didn't happen until like Halloween two. Right. Uh, like. That he is going to someday escape, and she has to be ready. She is she's completely. Gone Sarah she's gone full Sarah Connor, and, and that was exactly the right decision, right? Absolutely. Do not deny that that was at any point the wrong decision. She has her own daughter, who's all grown up now, played by Judy Greer, who herself has a daughter who's about the age that Laurie Strode was in the it original. About three generations of women that have been traumatized directly or indirectly by Michael Myers, and that is the strength. The strongest part of this film, especially when all three women are together in the third act with yeah. them, like the movie setting you up for horror tropes you expect and then turning them on their head because these women are ready. Yeah. <laughs> they have been they're preppers. They're waiting for this ultimate toxic male to come <laughs> along and deal with him on his Not own terms. <laughs> to deal with him on his own terms. Yes. And, and when that genuinely... I admit, watching this in the theater, I was genuinely surprised at one or two points in that third act. We're like, oh, oh, that's where they're going. That's interesting. Yeah. Because these women have a lot more agency than your typical screen queens. And you have three generations of them going... No, we're done with this fucker. We're, we're ready for him now. Uh, there's a lot of fun in this movie to be had. I, I don't disagree at all. And even some, like, genuinely kind of creepy, even scary moments. There's the, although, weirdly, the best kill in the whole movie is, like, this random kill where he kills this woman in her house by putting yeah. a knife through her neck. And you're like, who's not a character yeah. at all. And you're kind of like... Why did you do that? Because and that's, that's what he does. I mean, he kills a child. That's the thing. This is the kind of movie. I'm sorry, a spoiler, but there's a kid who dies very early on, and if that's the movie's way of telling you, you think Michael Myers is a joke because you've seen him in a thousand fucking sequels. This is the guy who's just going to kill anybody in his way. He doesn't care who you are. You know, but and he does it just because he can. But that is one of my problems with this film. Not that that was their intention, but that it was so separate from everything else. It was a chapter stop. We need to put this in here so we can make sure people understand this. Yeah. And I was kind of like, this feels so unorganic and there's a lot of unorganic moments in it that just feel so utterly calculated by people who do definitely really understand all the things they want to establish to get the horror of this and the, 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 to the Halloween audience to work right. But don't partially because they're just kind of crowbarred in I on mean, the in side. In an ideal Halloween movie, especially if we accept the fact that for whatever reason, Michael Myers absolutely must kill Laurie Strode. In, in a different movie, 
that's all he would go after. He wouldn't take the time to kill anybody else. This would be a this would be a movie with like no body count. The only body count would be the people he has to kill to get off the bus. This does, of course, beg the question. As much as it it firmly puts the hammer down on. She is not his sister. It flat out says it, acknowledges it. That was just a rumor. And then, so why is he so obsessed with her specifically if she's not? It's it's a weird point where I'm like, why not? Keep Halloween too in in the thing in the in the whole thing ah. if it makes her a sister because it makes this movie make more sense if she is. I mean, my only reading of it was that it was just like for Michael Myers is like well fuck that's the one that got away. It's like he's killed everybody he wanted to kill. He's like he can't let that one go. Well, no, it he doesn't make any more sense. But hey, it's still better than like you know Celtic witchcraft or something. And this film is. Filled with references to even the se- the yeah. the not in the continuity sequels. There's tons of stuff here for fans that that they do the right way. They do it that you don't realize you're you're yeah. seeing a reference unless you saw that movie and know that it's a reference. Absolutely. Like you know, you don't go, "What? That was weird. Why was that there?" Uh, no, it it slides <laughs> right by, like kids running by with Halloween masks mm-hmm. on Halloween night that are the masks from Halloween right. Three: Season of the Witch, stuff yeah. like that, or a, a big gas station massacre which the, i think it's halloween four that it references and it's like there's stuff like that you're like oh that's really cool that they want to say we know that we're d- disavowing all those other films in terms of continuity but we also want you to understand we like those movies yeah. too and we want to like like not be insulting to fans right. of that movie this is also the movies. first movie in the series in a long time that gets the mask right Oh, it's the first one since the first one. Yeah, I mean, because that was a cheap Halloween mask, and they just continued it. It was hard, and so they had to recreate it each movie. And it never looked never good. Never quite nailed it, but this time they nailed it. Even though it looks old, it still has, like, you know, some tears that correspond Dude, to the yeah, original. I, I remember saying in the original review, I was so thrilled that there's a very specifically seen hole in the side of it where Laurie put the coat hanger into his neck from the first one. I was like, now that's someone who is being slavishly loyal to yes. the original film in a way that I can appreciate. Yeah, I mean, that mask is as... A fa- there's a lot of things about the Michael Myers character that just frankly doesn't make any sense. That's why the first film is so good. You don't have to explain it. He's just fucking crazy. But when you get to that mask, when it's done right, you realize, oh, that's why people like this character. He is genuinely creepy. And so I can forgive the filmmakers for going, you know, we got to have him kill some innocent people because that's kind of what he does. No, I don't mind that either. It just always is. And those were staged really well. I love the way it just follows him down a hallway and he like picks up something. He goes, okay. Kills somebody with that, sees a better knife. It's like, oh, I'll use this knife instead. One of my biggest problems is, as fun as it is to watch the third act final denouement play out, it doesn't make any sense from a this is what Jamie Lee Curtis has been planning the whole time way. Yeah. You're, you're, it falls apart the moment you start thinking about it. And you're like, sure. wait, what? This was the plan? That was How the could twist. you possibly? But... But the twist is it delivers it, it delivers in an immediacy sense. Exactly. Yeah. In the moment, which is really the way these films tend to work. Yeah. In the moment, they are working on you. But yeah, like you show me any slasher film from any period of time, you spend about ten minutes on it, you're gonna go, ah, maybe not. I mean, so some much. of them don't have enough going on that there's even anything oh, yeah, to one shot. Then but, and there. 
All right. So obviously people want to know what is this worth it to own this thing, which is available on 4K and Blu-ray? What comes bonus wise here, which I admit I as well as a longtime fan of the series, although it's one of those things. I'm a fan of the series, dedicated fan of the series, and I don't even like most of them, but I've watched most of them multiple times. I like Michael Myers more than pretty much any other slasher killer. Uh, But this is definitely, I'll say, as much as I have big problems with this movie, it's argue outside of Halloween 3, which doesn't count in discussing these because it's not a Michael Myers film, yeah. it's the best sequel. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, so what do we get? We get 12 minutes and 42 seconds of deleted extended scenes that... Some of which are worth seeing here. I I don't think they're – like some of which are totally unnecessary. There's a dog – a graphic dog death that I I know some people who will desperately not want to watch. But that's actually part of the Michael Myers thing. Michael Myers kills dogs. There's six minutes – He's more of a cat person. (laughs) There's six minutes back in Haddonfield making Halloween, which is – yeah, like more of an EPK or a, yeah. than anything else with them talking about their this love of the original EPK stuff. Yeah, it really is. Some of them are pretty are not yeah. bad though. There's a you know, exploration of the original Scream Queen, exploration of Jamie Lee Curtis as the original compared to in here. Uh, there's the sound of fear, which I actually thought was the best. A uh, little featurette, despite sure. being only three minutes and 19 seconds, where John Carpenter works with his own son yeah. to develop the score for this film, which tries to mix the leitmotifs of the original film and create something new building on them that I think was really one of the cooler yeah. aspects of this movie. And once again, of the bonus features, there's Journey of the Mask, which I don't know needed a separate feature, but it is kind of cool that they went to so much trouble to get the mask right, which... To be fair, it's been commented on quite a bit by the fans. The mask has looked terrible for a really long yeah. time. This is the first movie that's gotten it dead on right. In fact, arguably even better than the original oh, yeah. in terms of creepiness. It's a great mask. And then there is four and a half minutes of the legacy of Halloween, which keeps all the important people, Jamie Lee Curtis, John Carpenter, David Gordon Green, and Jason Blum, who was the producer, obviously the uh, president of Blumhouse Productions, to sit down for a very small chat about making the film, about the original film, yada, yada. I'm kind of curious why if they got all four of these people in a room for a discussion, this isn't an hour-long extra feature. Because apparently that's – maybe that's being saved for some future box set. Yeah. Because ma- everything here is about five minutes or less. Yeah. I'm just like, this is amazing. It's You've skippy. got all four of these guys sitting down in a room that's clearly been designed and set designed for this discussion, and it's four and a half minutes long. What the fuck? Obviously, y'all guys, you guys talked for longer than that. I want to hear you guys keep talking. I think this is really geared towards the casual fan or somebody who's maybe coming to Halloween for the first time uh, later on. Because Halloween has gotten multiple reissues with some very impressive features. And maybe one day down the line, we will get that version for this. But unfortunately, this is just a pretty standard release. So we got a re-release by Arrow for Ah. Guillermo del Toro's 2015 gothic romance film, Crimson Peak, which I famously don't care for at all. Uh, I had avoided it for a while, which is odd, because this is the only del Toro film I can think of that I didn't see at the theater. Uh, Just for whatever reason, I wasn't feeling it. And watching it now, I can I can understand why some people might not care for it. Uh, it kind of built itself as a horror film, but while it's got a few little scares here and there, this is uh, this is a gothic romance. Yeah. It's a very heavy emphasis on that, and heavy handed, and heavy handed. But again, has Del Toro ever been subtle? He's never denied the things that he loves, and he went all in on this. Uh, there's 
And again, you know, we can thank the guys at Arrow for taking this release that already came out, probably with some of these same features, but have added some new stuff yeah. that if you're kind of like me, that was kind of on the fence for it. And you watch the movie, you listen to the commentary and see some of these other uh, uh, features, you kind of have a better appreciation for what he was trying to do. I think it was a hard sell, and I don't think audiences really responded to this. Uh, but this is not the kind of movie that gets made very often anymore. No, I mean, I don't know if I entirely agree with that. There is a Hammer Films just recently, got bought by someone else, has been sliding out new films, trying to do this sort of stuff. And to be fair, they have been less successful than even this was yeah. on the whole. There was one they did I did like, but I'm blanking on the name of it. Uh, like, But the Britishy style gothic period piece romance horror has definitely one of those styles that has fallen by the wayside yeah. for a while. But Del Toro brings to it a sort of uh, hyperbole of, of, uh, of extremes that with the design of the creatures, with everything being so wildly, overtly on the nose that I just found it just kind of exhaustingly juvenile to watch. I, I think it is. I think you're watching a 12-year-old Del Toro finally getting to make the Hammer film he always envisioned. Fair enough. But tell, um, why don't you tell a brief version very, of the very plot? Brief version but hand me a this. beer first before you All do right. that. I'll just say this does, in fact, star some wonderful actors oh, yeah. in this film. I, 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 I know... Question, Mia Wasikowska, who has uh, a difficult-to-pronounce name, but a terrifically worth-following career, plays the lead character of Edith Cushing. Wink. Yeah. Uh, Edith Warden and Peter Cushing. Who is, that's the movie right there. Uh, Judd Tom Hiddleston plays Sir Thomas Sharp, the owner of the titular Crimson Peak, which is a crazy, improbable, huge gothic house yes. up on a hill made of blood red clay right. seeping through the snow and Jessica Chastain plays his um uh his sister yeah he she's she's uh like Mina Harking if she had actually kept like actually some of the aspects of Dracula's blood yeah <laughs> uh, this is the story of uh Edith Cushing she is a young uh, she's a young girl woman. She's a budding writer, uh, trying to make it in a man's world. We see very early on that she tries to get one of her stories published and the publisher kind of dismisses her as a woman and as a writer of ghost stories. And she says, well, actually, I think this is more of a story that just happens to have a ghost in it. And that's kind of the heart of this movie here. Uh, you think it's a haunted house movie and it is that. But it is the doomed romance between her and Tom Hiddleston, uh, who comes to America looking to find a bride uh, who will probably bring him some money. Uh, she ends up getting married to the guy. He takes her back to the, his family estate, Allendale House or whatever it's called. But she finds out the Crimsons call it, or the locals call it Crimson Peak yeah, because she, of the red clay. Which she had been warned by, as we see early, see early on, by a really silly-looking yeah. CG ghost of her her mother that yes. warns her, well, beware of Crimson, Crimson Peak. Peak. You know, which is a little <laughs> bit on the nose, too. But I do love the designs of the ghosts, which are all red, except for the one you mentioned, black. And they're except not the CG. Mother. They are... They are practical, but then they are added. They have some CG layers to make them look a little translucent and right. look like they're 
ectoplasm. I think their faces were actually CG. Yeah, there, there's combinations. If you look again, if you watch the special features, Chris, yeah. you'll see how some of these things were made, and they're quite beautiful. Uh, it's the same company that he's used on almost all of his Spanish language films, right? Uh, which also has a uh, one of the performers and uh, sculptors is a woman I think by the name of Edith Monse, and oh, she's so hot. Okay. I'm Special sorry. Side Every time note. I see her, I'm like, Edith, oh my if God. you're out there, I don't know if it's Marco's, Edith. No, it's Marco is one. single. I'm Edith just saying. Beautiful Spanish woman, cute as a button, and she makes horrific monsters. Dude, what is not to love? She pretty much is your dream woman. Yeah. I mean, she actually played the young Hellboy in the original. They just said, oh, no hey, let's, just, let's just put it on her. She's there. So they just made her the young Hellboy. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, this is an Arrow feature, so of course you're going to get a lot of great special features on this. I agree with Chris that the movie may be a hard sell. As you go through the movie, you're going to realize that uh, the Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain characters, they are like any gothic, uh, any characters in a gothic romance have some date- troubled backstory, have some scandalous secrets of the past. But you're also going to find a marvel of production design. Uh, this the house is a character in its own right. Uh, the house is super cool. Everything is so elaborate. No, no, that de- of no course denial. it is going to overshadow everything that comes into it. it. The, all the set design and the costume design is so cool, and I found the ghosts kind of like ridiculous. Well, the thing is, when and I'm not going to spoil anything, but the ghosts are not the threat. This is this is one of those movies where you think you're there to be scared about the ghost. Yeah. And then you realize what the ghosts are doing. And then there. when it gets into the actual twists of the murder mystery stuff, I'm like, this is dumb. <laughs> it's dumb, but it's very much like something you'd see in a gothic novel. I, and I, I admit, I saw the twist coming because I thought, well, this is exactly what you would I mean, do part of it in is a gothic novel. I expect more from a modernly made Guillermo del Toro film with a big budget and big name actors and it falls back very quickly into some really chintzy plot stuff that doesn't sell in this level of film. I expected better. Yeah. And I, I and this is only my second time watching it, because I disliked this movie intensely when I saw it in the theater. And seeing it, I do definitely like am softer towards it on a rewatch. Because there are things in here to really like. Also, Jim Beaver from Supernatural plays yeah. uh, Mia Wasikowska's dad. Yeah. I wish there was more of him in it's it. It's actually a very small cast. Uh, uh, Charlie Hunnam yeah. has a small role playing kind of like the... Uh, Oh God! What Doctor Harker role, basically? Yeah. You know, he's sort of he's supposed to be the kind the the hero of the piece. But yeah, I think, but he's know, barely in the film. That around, he goes, no, my female character is going to be the her own hero. Uh, Burn doesn't need the, someone to save her. Burn Gorman has a small role yeah. in here, who you might know from uh, Torchwood and other things. Game of Thrones. Uh, he's been in, he's pretty much a Del Toro company player. And now. Doug Jones, of course, comes in to play oh, yeah. the ghosts. Essentially, I mean, it's a pretty film that has moments that that go too far that take me out of the movie and i just think the plotting of this is 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 kind of predictable and dumb there's a lot of sort of like the movie acting like you haven't already figured it out but we're talking about like well before the halfway point of the second act you know everything that's going to happen from yeah, then on more out. Or less. Uh, more or less. With the exception of Charlie Hunnam coming into the plot. But, like I said, I think there's some people who really like this. I can't really... Like, I get it. It's it's a film that's, like, almost fetishistic about its gothic romance, it like, visuals. And if you like that, Arrow has treated this film extremely well with a gorgeous 
Blu-ray transfer. Uh, the original was pretty good. I, uh, apparently, this is uh, even better <laughs> than the previous versions here, including a really nice audio uh, DTS-X track here is 7-1. There's audio commentary by Guillermo de Toro, because you can't shut him up if you try. No, no. He definitely can talk and wax eloquent about the things that he loves. And you're right, Del Toro is a fetishistic filmmaker, but to see how the various departments sort of feed that fetishism is quite impressive. This is full of featurettes that go into the design, the background, the writing of the story. There's there's a bunch of those featurettes, but there's also like a 50-minute constructing Crimson Peak, which is advertised as a newly edited piece, whatever that means, which is... I think this was some stuff... Okay, let me just interrupt you here real quick. If you watch these special features you're going to see some repeated footage. A lot of this was right. clearly originated as an EPK. You clearly have actors who are talking, uh, promoting the film, but not revealing some of the twists. So it was clearly designed as a promotional piece. And some of that stuff has been reconstituted into this longer piece. Like we were talking about the Halloween special features. Why is it this an hour? Well, they right. cut it down to four minutes. So if you ever wondered what happened if you put all that material into something approaching documentary fe- that feels you like, would get this. That feels like a mini feature yeah. about the making of. And so I appreciated that because I'd rather see a 50-minute piece than 32 five-minute pieces. There's an eight-and-a-half-minute with, inter- uh, with Guillermo del Toro interview, which is also advertised as previously unseen that's Spanish with English subtitles. Uh, there is a 17-and-a-half-minute interview with Kim Newman on Crimson Peak and the Tradition of Gothic Romance, which is usually the sort of thing I like best on these yeah. Arrow features, which is an and analysis he, of the true. genre itself. Uh, there's violence and beauty in Guillermo del Toro's gothic fairy tale films for 23 minutes and 37 seconds, which is a visual essay by the same critic. There's four, uh, almost five minutes of deleted scenes, and then a bunch of like marketing stuff on here. Uh, it's, this is so, everything. It's a, if you like this film, it's a really, it's the best version that exists of it. Yes. But let's finish out with a film that is, I would say, one of the most divisive movies of 2018, and that is Luca Guadagino's I, I hesitate to call it a remake because he doesn't call it a remake. Yeah. He says a reimagining, which sounds pretentious, but in this case it's true, of Dario Argento's legendary 70s film Suspiria. Now, I think Suspiria is the best horror film ever made, the original. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. It delivers everything in a way that was groundbreaking and new, and it still holds up today in a way that is mesmerizing to new viewers who've never seen anything like it. And Guadagino tries to make a film that doesn't resemble that original film almost at all, visually, but also is creating a really memorable and invigorating visual style to it that is distinctive and doesn't look like anything else. It just is always going to be hurt by the fact that at no point does this even begin to touch the groundbreakingness visuals of the original Argento Suspiria. Well, the thing is, Argento's visuals... Is probably the strongest aspect of Suspiria. Right. Well, I mean, you no, can no, look no. at Suspiria and the go, well, score. this is kind of a dumb movie. The score is Same. the and best the aspect. <laughs> and this is kind of my problem with this movie, because now, I mean, I've seen it a couple times now. I've appreciated it each time. Uh, really, the only thing it has in common with the original Suspiria is that it's about witches who operate a dance studio in Berlin. 
you removed and that. A, and a young, innocent American who comes in uh, to join the dance yeah. studio who is our protagonist. You remove those elements, then, you know, you could just call this anything else, and no one would have accused you of making a Suspiria remake. It's a good 30 minutes into this film when it takes... It starts taking wild left turns into a movie that has nothing to do with the original yeah. movie. But I'd like a lot of those left turns because yeah. I don't want to see a remake of Suspiria. I like the idea of someone going, I like this idea a lot. What if this went a completely different way? I like where Guadagino is coming from. I don't like all the decisions that he made. No. I, I think especially, I think the score is it is, is not point. great. It, and like I know people love Tom York, but yeah. it just did not. It doesn't work no. here. Uh, some people gave it like best score of the year. And I'm like, no, are you kidding? I mean, there's some moments where it's perfectly fine. It tends to, it's not assertive. It's in the background. It kind of, I tune it out. But there is a climactic moment where they decide to use one of the few sort of Tom York uh, songs, that is, an actual song. And I get it. I Here's my problem with this movie. They so want to not be the Argento version. Every time the original zigs, this version zags. So if Goblin was going to be huge and bombastic or orchestral, like, fine, this we'll is, have Tom York do a sad ballad yeah. and, you know, over this amazing scene of violets. And it just doesn't work. The, the two weakest points of this film is, A, the soundtrack, which doesn't work at all. doesn't fit it at all. You're, I'm constantly – it's anachronistic. I'll go that far. It's anachronistic, his music in this film, where you're like, what is this song doing here? And not yeah. in a way that adds to a feeling of discomfort you don't or something. Goblin didn't need lyrics. And yeah. even when they did, it was just some chanting. The second uh, thing, there's a whole subplot with uh-huh. uh, with uh, 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 Tilda Swinton, who plays uh, the the main lead co- the lead choreographer, and I would say the secondary primary role in the film next to Dakota Johnson, who is yeah. the young American new dancer coming in, uh, where she is playing that they were all denying at the yes. time it was her, but it clearly was under heavy makeup. This old World War II Holocaust survivor who's a therapist who has been treating a previous a student of the academy played very briefly by Chloe Grace Moretz, who's Uh barely in the film. And that whole thing is this weird tertiary subplot that gets into a bunch of Guadagino wanting to talk about things that I'm not even entirely clear what he was getting at uh, that have to do with like old guys and, and and PTSD that has been around for 40 years and lost loves and that have no place in this movie at all. Here's the big difference between these two films. Both films are set in Berlin in a dance studio during 1977. Argento's film is a contemporary film. His choice of Berlin is not accidental, but it's almost incidental. It's really not that important. Once you're in the dance studio, which is clearly a, a studio set... It is this highly stylized artificial world. Dario Argento doesn't give a shit about anything that is going on in 1977 no. or in Berlin. Doesn't even play into it, it. It barely plays in at all. It's, But that gives it a kind of timeless quality. Guadagnino is also setting this film in Berlin in 1977, which makes his film a period piece. And he is very interested in what was going on in 1977. It's a very difficult time. It's a city divided by itself. He wants you to have the Biner Meidhof group running around. It's He it, wants to say all he, this political stuff on the side that seems to have no relevance that's to the, the primary problem. plot. 
the ingredients are there. This is why I've often said that, you know, as big a fan as I am of this new trend towards sort of like elevated smart horror, Suspiria is a smart horror film, but it's not as smart as it thinks it is. You're being allowed in a Guadagnino study and you're seeing all the books on his wall and you go, wow, this must be a smart motherfucker. He's got all these books, but I don't know that he's read those books or he's not telling me what those books are about. So to layer in all of these things about 1977, about Berlin, about a city that's literally divided between communism and and democracy, between, you know, the horrors of World War II and, you know, whether or not that's a greater evil than the evil that's happening now or the comparison between the coven and like terrorist groups. It's all this heady stuff that he just kind of throws at the wall and I'm supposed to go, oh, that's deep. It's like, no, it's not deep. You just threw all your reference material onto the wall. You didn't actually construct it into something interesting. It's so not mildly organic. And the film spends, outside of that one character, that character we're talking about, the beginning being the therapist for Chloe Grace Moretz, and then at the end being literally only there for an excuse for the plot to let Jessica Harper have a small role in this yeah. film who played the protagonist in the original And who Suspiria. deserved better than that Who deserved tiny much. Role. Why isn't she one of the teachers exactly. in this school? Exactly. Like, That's baffling to me why you would make the decision they did there. That whole character the felt, like, is, felt like Tilda Swinton going, I've got this cool idea and I'm Tilda Swinton saying so you should do it. And that is exactly what happened because Tilda Swinton, I went in with the hopes and anticipation that that double casting was meaningful. It's not. That it was somehow like these two characters are supposed to be like different sides of the same argument or were somehow related. You know, I, I kept thinking, oh, it's going to be that, you know, it's actually, that's his wife, but she never aged and he did. I kept thinking there'd be some connection between those two. And it turns out, no, you're just an old man who's conveniently located place for this next part of the plot. No, I don't want you it guys... pure gimmicky casting. I don't want you guys to think that this is like we're dissing thoroughly Not at this all. film. Because there is a lot to really like about this yeah. movie. It's... Like I said, once again, very beautifully shot. It doesn't look a thing like the original no. Suspiria or sound a thing like it, which is a problem. But the look, it is gorgeous. Yeah. I love what Guadagino is doing with this camera here. I think the third act, with the exception of what they're trying to do with the psychotherapist, knocks it out of the park. Yeah. There's a whole sort of blood ballet yeah. sequence at the end that is kind of astonishing, yeah. I thought. Except for the Tom York score. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff here that is well worth completely yeah. like bowing down and going, man, Guadagino, you're one of our best right now. Yeah. But it needed someone. This feels like one of those films that needed someone to come in and say, stop. And, and well, you know, and Guadagino didn't write this. I forget the name of the uh, screenwriter, but I'm sure that they were working closely together. This is at two and a half hours. This is already an hour longer than the original Suspiria. Yeah. It is too long. It is too over an hour long ideas. And again, it's one of those things where I would rather a filmmaker fail for trying too hard rather than fail for not trying hard enough. Agreed. I totally agree with that. And that's why I'm, I feel like, like I being a apologist to this film on some level, I've argued with some of my friends in town about it. Like, Exactly that viewpoint. It's not like they weren't trying really hard to create something that was genuinely new and different, but that was deeply inspired by the original film. Guadagino said repeatedly, this is the movie, the original movie is the movie that made him want to be a filmmaker. Like it is, it means a lot to him. 
And I love the fact that it means so much to him that he didn't want to copy it. I think that's important yeah. and very pertinent to discussing this film. And I think you end up with a, with a film that isn't great, but has aspects of greatness yes. to it. And it has legs. I think people will still keep watching this movie and will still keep pulling things out of it, even though sometimes those things don't work or don't add up. This is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, could be a new horror classic, but it's it's going to forever be this kind of thing as a horror fan that you're going to have to watch both of these films. It's a movie that I suspect over time will actually be thought of better by people who don't like horror movies who skipped it, yeah. who will discover it and go, oh my God, this is so good. Yeah. This is their type of movie. But horror fans, I don't think this is a, really a film for horror fans, despite having some very impressive, yeah, creepy and gory horror sequences. A no, absolutely. Which is one reason why the special features on this disc are a little disappointing. Oh, they're very disappointing. Because I wanted more. I wanted to not only see more how they did that. You see a little bit of it. I wanted Guadagnino go and his screenwriter going, look, this is what we're talking about. Now, I agree, a filmmaker does not, is not obligated to sit down and explain to you why his movie works or what it's about. You should watch the movie. But a film like this, I think, would have really benefited audiences who are perhaps not familiar with the political landscape that it's set in and kind of take some of those themes out of it because I think some horror fans are going to have this knee-jerk reaction to it without understanding the history that they're trying to deal with. There's about 13 minutes total of bonus features here with three short EPKs that aren't telling you much that you couldn't no. figure out for yourself. And this is the type of film that as imperfect as it is, yeah. deserves a deep cut yeah. exploration. Absolutely. I, this is a movie that if it came on a criterion, I would absolutely I mean, pick this up. Guadagnino does not, is not obligated to explain his movie to you, but it would have been a great opportunity to get other horror fans or like scholars or, critics, or academics, what whatever critics to sit down and go, let me tell you what I think this to film is have about. a discussion. To Even treat this film the way they treated Argento in these uh, later releases. This is the film that deserves a very scholarly long argument. Yeah. Between very super intelligent people who take different side positions on the movie, all of whom have respect for it, but have different positions. And I feel like there's a lot going on in this film. Uh, there's a lot in the subtext of this film. Once again, far from perfect, but it sure is fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that brings us to the end of this week's Digital Noise. I know this is a longer one than usual, but hey, I, I was having a great time. So. I was having a good time. We, and I, a lot I, of films that there was a lot to say about. This I haven't week. completely started. Oh, no. I mean, there, there's a lot of things. We were talking about this earlier. You're really good at speeding me up. Like, hey, yeah. we got to move on to the next thing. Because, hey, we still haven't talked about Peter Yates' other film he released in 1983. He made Kroll and the Dresser. The Dresser is oh, the dresser amazing. Is amazing. Yeah, it's a classic. Now, here's how Kroll, how much Kroll sucks. Nine-year-old me should have a hard-on for Kroll. Kroll is a film that was genetically modified in a lab to make nine-year-old me happy. <laughs> the Dresser... Nine-year-old me liked that movie a lot more than more Kroll. than Crawl. I know, I know, I know. I remember seeing it. I wasn't nine. I'm a little older than you, yes. but I saw it when it came out because my parents were really into it. Yeah. Of all things, who didn't weren't the seek out film types, but somehow I saw it through them. And I was like, "This is great!" Yeah, uh, there was a remake of it. Just yeah, recently. with uh, with uh, uh, Ian McKellen and yes, uh, but, but the original remember, Tom Courtney and yeah. Albert Fitty. Yeah, 
And I just re- always remember him just standing on the platform, just going, stop that train, and the train stops. You, you but just, I'm going to stop now. You Now my brain is ruined because you said Tom Courtney. Because now all I can think of, Julie Christie, the rumors are true. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, want, you want to blow your mind? I'm in that music video. What? Yeah. Shut up. I you are not. That That's We're talking about Yellow Tango. They have a song yeah. called Tom Courtney. That was one of my first jobs as a PA, working on that music video. Fuck you. There's a tiny little clip of me walking through it. Yeah, my friend Ross is sitting in the room who's going to see Yellow Tango here in town yeah. on, on uh, Wednesday. Okay. All right. So, so, tomorrow this, night. And he's like a huge fan like I am. And now his mind right, is right, like. All right. <laughs> bonus feature here. And I know we're off topic, but since you brought it up and I never get to tell this story. This was my first job as a PA on a music video. I was like. 20 years old, I am lost looking for this location. I'm running around trying to find the place. And I see Yola Tango standing on a street corner, already in costume. I'm thinking, oh, thank God. They're also walking to the location. But, of course, the stars get to come a little bit later. But as a PA, I was supposed to be there earlier. So I walk up next to, I think it's Ira, one of the other guys in the band. I just go, oh, thank God I found you guys. I wasn't sure where this place was. And I read the quarter of his mouth just goes, you're in the shot. <laughs> and I'm sure there's some outtake of 20-year-old me just terrified look on my face, just kind of creeping off the frame. Uh, because Yola Tango just told me to get the fuck out of their shot. Wait, so you're saying you're not actually in the video. I am in the video in a tiny little bit. Oh, okay. Not that anybody cares. Uh, no, I do. We're going to watch but, it after but this. But that was the first time I even got there. And I thought, oh, I'm following them to the location. I thought I was so clever. If I follow the band, I'll get to the location. Not realizing they were already shooting. So, like, uh, like I know we're, we're going way off topic. Just to yeah, you can always already long out. episode. But I will just say, like, Yellow Tango, one of my favorite bands of all time. I I'll already know it's one of Ross's. Uh, 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 my friend Ross from Hong Kong's favorite uh, uh, bands of all time. And Marco obviously really likes them as well. I mean, I, mean, I, I like them. And this but is it's just I have arguably, arguably my favorite song by I, them. You know what? I and mine too, but I can't believe you know what? Finally I found something good to say about Kroll. Because Kroll brought us to this moment. You're the someone should put this on the Wikipedia page. It's like six the six degrees of crawl. There should be the in the Kroll Wikipedia page, this should come down. It's like, oh wait, I do have one thing that we can say good about Kroll. 